Hello and welcome to the Learn About ME podcast series. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Claire Ogden, and I work for Action for ME, a national charity supporting people with ME of all ages. Today's topic is Learn About ME and Paediatrics, the latest in our series of podcasts available on Buzzsprout and Spotify. We are funded by the Scottish Government to deliver a medical education project. This project aims to increase the confidence of health and social care professionals in diagnosing and supporting patients with the health condition myalgic encephalomyelitis, known as ME or ME-CFS. This long-term fluctuating neurological condition affects an estimated 21,000 adults and children in Scotland. Alongside this series of podcasts, we are encouraging medical and social care professionals to complete an online module worth one CPD point to enhance their knowledge of ME. You can find out more and complete the module by visiting the Action for ME website. In this episode, we discuss the need for specialist support and understanding for children and young people who live with ME. Currently, there are no specialist services or support in Scotland, and the 2010 Scottish Good Practice Statement on MECFS only offers interim advice supporting children and young people. This leaves families facing difficult situations without adequate or appropriate support. Many face interventions from schools and social workers that betray a lack of understanding of ME with far-reaching impacts on health, education and quality of life for children, young people and their families. In this episode, we speak to Helen Gibson, an active member of ME Parents and a volunteer for ME Action Scotland, and Dr Benita Kane, Respiratory Lead at a Health Innovation Programme in Manchester. Welcome, Benita, and thank you for joining us today. What do GPs and consultants often miss when assessing a child or young person who reports fatigue or pain? Well, Thirsty, thanks very much for inviting me to come on to the podcast um, about a topic I'm really passionate about. I think this is a really challenging question because there is so much we could talk about here. I think at the moment, we are probably not even considering a virus as a trigger a lot of the time. Uh, and particularly since COVID testing kind of dropped off. Uh, the, so at the first step, if you don't consider a viral trigger or an infective trigger, you won't be able to consider a post-viral illness. So that's the first step. I think the second thing when you're in primary care is you're dealing with absolutely everything. So GPs are often very good at thinking, well, this child's presenting tired, let's check the thyroid function, the B12, the folate, the full blood counts, they'll do all the bloods, but they tend to come back normal or pick up minor abnormalities and then the child goes off. And what we're missing a lot of the time is that really detailed history taking. It doesn't even have to be that detailed, there's just some really key questions that could give you the clue that this is that you know, this is a post-viral illness, this is ME, this is long COVID. And it's asking about some of those cardinal symptoms like post-exertional malaise or post-exertional symptom exacerbation. So if your child is very active, do they have a period where they sort of crash and need to rest the next day? And I think there's a lot of kids at the moment who are doing PE and coming home very tired and, and being sort of written off as being lazy or disengaged or they get diagnosed with some sort of mental health anxiety what have you, and, and they're being taken down that route rather than people actually thinking, oh, could there be a physiological reason why? There are a number of conditions that we know are associated with post-viral illness. So if a child has got a history of allergies or asthma, or if they've been hypermobile, or if there's a family history of chronic fatigue or ME, 
those are all clues that this child could have a post-viral illness. And asking about family history is really important. Conditions that are associated with ME are things like POTS, which stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's extremely common post-COVID. Up to 60% of people have a degree of POTS. And that can be diagnosed with a very simple bedside test. So in this condition, people lose the ability to keep the blood supply going to their brain in an upright position. And so they can't tolerate the upright position. It can cause fatigue. It can cause the heart rate to go through the roof when they try and do anything. It can be quite crippling if it's severe and people literally can't stand up. You can do something called a 10-minute lean test, which obviously takes 10 minutes at least. So it's not conducive to doing that in a regular GP surgery, but people can be taught to do it at home to get an, ind- an indication of what's going on. It's a simple bedside test. It's treatable and you can transform someone's life just by giving them some treatment for this condition. Simple things, beta blockers, fluids, increasing salt. Another condition which is very commonly associated with ME is, is mast cell activation. So that is when there's a flare up of allergies, of asthma, skin rashes, it's, we're seeing it a lot post-COVID. So there's an extreme form of it, which is MCAS, the, the full-blown sort of syndrome, but then there's degrees of it before that. And simple things like antihistamines can really help. Um, but if you're not aware that this is associated with the virus and, and do the right combination of treatments, then that might, might not be treated adequately enough. There are other clues in terms of when the autonomic nervous system goes wrong. Children can get light sensitive, sound sensitive. They can withdraw into themselves and that can be misdiagnosed as anxiety or depression. So asking specifically about those things. And finally, there is a condition called paediatric acute neuropsychiatric syndrome or PANS where children can very suddenly almost overnight after an illness develop uh, a complete behavior change so it could be obsessive compulsive type conditions it could be tics it could be regression and and they can suddenly become very very difficult to manage as a parent very poorly recognized it can be treated sometimes if it's been triggered by a streptococcal infection it be treated with antibiotics can transform that patient's life but often again things are pushed down the mental health route rather than thinking is there something treatable here um Final caveat is tests are often reported as normal when there are definitely subtle abnormalities. So you might say your full blood count's normal, but there could be a raised eosinophil count or something like that that will give you a clue that there's mast cell activation. People are having these 24-hour heart rate recordings being told that they're normal because there's no rhythm disturbance. But actually for a child who's lying in bed, a heart rate of 140 while they're lying in bed is not normal. So a lot of these things are not being interpreted in the context of the child or the pre-morbid, sort of the pre-illness state. Um, so lots and lots of pitfalls. And you know, the best thing I can say is educate yourself about it because this is going to be walking through your door as a GP or a consultant in every guise because it affects every single body organ. And I'm seeing tons of this stuff, even in my respiratory clinic, where people are referred with a bit of breathlessness. And then when I dig into it, oh, they've got POTS they're going to really benefit from some beta blocker because I do the tests, bedside tests. So anyway, I'll stop there because I could take up another hour, I think, talking about this stuff. But yeah, I know there's some really good education models out there that um, Action for ME and and others have worked on. Uh, So please, please, please go and educate yourselves. 
Benita, you mentioned that your daughter had a period of illness. Can you tell us a bit about that and maybe share what you learned from that experience? Yeah, so she had COVID in January 2021 when she was 10 and just never recovered from that episode. And like everybody else at that time, I mean, she was in lockdown. So for a couple of months, she was resting by definition because she wasn't going into school. But when it got to the March and they went back to school, we as parents were, oh, she's missed so much school. And even though she wasn't right, we pushed her to go in and she went back full time. And of course, the inevitable crashes happened. And we went through that cycle before anything dawned on us that actually this is really, really, really bad. So she ended up being taken out of school after a month, six weeks, completely. Um, And that's when we really began to sort of dig deep and go, what is going on here? I found that when she got that, that diagnosis of probable ME, long COVID, um, there was very little advice out there. And I'm talking as a consultant healthcare professional, I didn't know what to do. And I looked around for resources and, and the best resource I actually found on pacing was written by a patient. And, I, and, I, and that was really sort of, wow, that there's nothing written by healthcare professionals here, which gives me a very, very practical guide to how I do this day to day. And it, it was a book. I had to read this whole book and it, and it, the, the realization really started dawning on me about how important that aspect was. So as doctors absolutely ingrained in you at every step of training that exercise is good. And it is through public health messaging as well. Get your 10,000 steps, push through, you just need to get back to the gym. And I think we're all brainwashed into believing that is correct for everything. But this is the one condition where that approach is absolutely harmful because the muscles and tissues are physically not getting enough oxygen. And so it's like trying to drive the car harder when you've not got enough petrol in the tank and it will, you will break the car. And that is a very, very difficult mindset shift for healthcare professionals and still three years over three years into the pandemic patients are being told to push through get back on the bike and we are causing serious damage to people then when we start looking into the history of ME which of course I knew nothing about decades and decades and decades that's been the advice that's been given that you gradually increase exercise through graded exercise therapy which of course has now been taken out and debunked and finally put to bed but culture is still strong in the world of physio particularly that graded exercise is the way forward it is changing probably not quickly enough and it's still ingrained in too many rehab services so I think physio absolutely has a role without a doubt the time it was offered to my daughter it was absolutely the stage where exertion would make her ill and so I put a stop to it very very quickly we then went abroad. She was treated with drugs that treated the underlying problem with oxygen transfer into her tissues. And over the course of the year, she has pretty much recovered fully. And we have very, very, very slowly over the course of another year, gradually increased her exercise. And it, that's very much been led by her. She's decided, I'm going to walk to school today. And we've gone, oh, okay. And then, but she's managed it. And then it's like, wow. And then, and she's, she's, she's actually pushed herself, but very, very gradually. And now we're going to reintegrate her into PE. But that whole process took 
two years and this idea that you can exercise somebody better in you know through a course of physio just has to has to go has to has to be put to bed what's the most useful thing that a gp can do for a young person with me or long covid the most useful thing is listening to the patient and listening to the parents and really hearing what the child is telling you the more children that i see with this condition they will tell you in history what is wrong with them i saw a young lad the other day who said it feels like there's too much gravity it feels like there's more gravity than there used to be i have other patients who describe i don't feel like i can get oxygen into my tissues and they are describing what we know are the pathophysiological mechanisms of ME, difficulty tolerating the upright position, difficulty holding your blood supply up against gravity, difficulty oxygenating the tissue. So they, they give you these beautiful descriptions of what's going on and often they're dismissed or ignored or told that they're anxious and not taken seriously. And parents, and particularly mothers, I think are often written off as anxious mothers and almost blamed for some of the behaviour that kids are describing so it's a really difficult challenging time for the families if they don't feel heard or believed and I think that's the most useful thing um, a healthcare professional can do. What do you wish that other health professionals know about the care of young people with ME? So I was probably a doctor who was part of the problem historically because I come through medical training which did not teach us about ME, didn't really spend much time ever thinking about it as a condition because I don't see the patients. They're often stuck behind closed doors, not accessing healthcare because they have poor experiences. My own daughter uh, suffered quite severely with long COVID. And when the word ME was first mentioned in her case, I think we think she's got ME-CFS, my gut reaction was, oh God, I don't want her to have that. That's that thing. The first thing that came along was this, oh, it's that psychological thing, because we are almost taught to believe that as doctors, um, which I feel pretty ashamed of now, actually. Um, Now I've been out there, spent three or four years immersed in the research, really tried to understand everything I can about the condition. It's pretty shocking. What's even more shocking is I probably suffered with it myself about 20 years ago. I had a very bad illness, uh, which left me completely flawed for about 10 months. And looking back, it was post-viral ME. I was a doctor at the time, had absolutely no idea that's what I was suffering from. and never really even understood my own health and my own condition until the last few years, because I've never been quite right since. So we've got an enormously long way to go. And I think what I have really learned from my personal journey of going from being someone who was in the establishment, didn't understand the condition to completely the other side. It's understanding your own limitations, your own knowledge, listening to patients when they tell you there's these studies out there, there's these guidelines. They are the most expert people in their condition. They will bring you the answers. Not dismissing it, not pushing exercise because that really can be very harmful. And and trying to have some insight and put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's suffering from this absolutely debilitating condition. Thank you, Benita. Helen, welcome and thank you for joining us today. What's been the most tricky thing for you as a parent of a child with ME? Well, thank you for inviting me on today. And it's a real privilege to be able to share our experience. I hope that people will benefit from that. It's difficult to say the most tricky thing. It's a very, very tricky journey. It's difficult enough, I think, when your child develops 
in our case, suddenly a serious and complex illness. But it's 10 times harder when that turns out to be an illness that is so poorly understood. Um, and I mean across society, so across, as Benita has alluded to, across the medical world, across wider society, um, in the education system, there is just so little understanding of it and actually quite a bit of misinformation as well. Don't get me wrong, we have family and friends around us who are incredibly supportive and understanding because they've taken the time to listen and learn from us, and that's the key. But our experience is that most people still have very little awareness of the illness and you have to consider how much energy you spend educating others versus looking after your child, really. So we're parents of a 17-year-old girl who has had ME for three years. Um, she is what we would call in the ME world sort of moderate verging on severe, so she's housebound, she's not able to take part in education. It's turned our lives on our heads, really. Um, the systems around us and that includes everything, medical, education, social care. They're just not geared up for this. And the result of that is that we have had to spend so much energy learning about it ourselves, advocating, educating everybody at every turn to get the support that our daughter needs. And it's taken a long time to get there as well. Um, so that is exhausting for parents. It leaves very little energy to provide the actual care that, might, that our daughter needs. Um, she needs 24-7 care, really, or support. Like many children, she has a sleep disorder, so until she was medicated, she was on a 25-hour sleep cycle, so she went to sleep an hour later every day and woke up an hour later every day. So for one week in three, she was up all night while we were in bed. I was making lunch for her at three in the morning. It's a very, very challenging thing to live with for the child and for the rest of the family. Parents are having to stop work because they need to be at home for their child. Siblings are suffering, marriages are breaking down, relationships breaking down. It's the lack of support that comes from all of this is um, really, really devastating, I would say. Um, I do kind of joke. <laughs> I read the NICE guideline and it talks about multidisciplinary teams and support. And I think I'm the physio, I'm the OT, I'm the dietitian, I'm the social worker, I'm the medical care coordinator. And occasionally, scarily, I feel I have to make judgments that I'm not qualified to make um, on what to do in a situation because there just isn't, there isn't specialist care. Our doctors have tried their best, but they have no one to refer her to. I rely on support groups sometimes, you know, and not just myself. This is quite common that something happens in the middle of the night and people are relying on their peers, their other parents to, to say, has this happened to you? What do I need to do? It's very, very demanding on families. What's been your most useful piece of learning around supporting your daughter with this illness? I would say um, it's quite simple. Health trumps everything else. And particularly for a child or young person, education should not be the priority at this stage if the health needs are greater. So you can return to education, but you can't necessarily get your health back. And I think that's probably the key shift in mindset that we've had to make and that others have to make. So I find it's very common for parents at the outset of the illness to be focused on trying to keep their child in school and that's natural your child's been going to school they get ill you want to help keep them in that school system and some children if they're not too badly affected can manage to be in school for at least some of the time and that can be good for them but for many the exertion that's required to get to school to concentrate in class to move around to socialize with friends it's more than their energy limits allow with this illness and over a period of time it can reduce their level of functionality so that they can't go to school, you know, and, and can make it substantially worse. And they don't always get that back. I think we all have a responsibility here, and that includes parents, teachers, medics, everybody who comes into contact with the children and young people. 
um, to help the child to work out where their limits are and to adjust their activities to suit that. One approach people take to doing that, they call it pacing, is to work out what you think you can do and then half it. So do half of what you think you can manage, um, or at least less than you think you can manage. Um, and that's a way of managing this illness. So it's really important that schools understand this and can work with the young person to adapt their learning. I find a lot of young people with ME do their learning from home. This is what we pick up in the networks that I'm in. And many of them do really, really well. And it comes to, to um, results day and it is lovely because parents are posting up that, you know, their, their young person's exam results and they've achieved amazingly well by learning from home because they've preserved that energy that they would have spent going into school. Others, like my daughter, are not well enough to take part in education just now and what they need is support to take a complete break from learning until they're well enough to come back to it and not have the pressure of an expectation that they should be keeping going with it just now. I think GPs and paediatricians can play a really instrumental role in this by working with the young person, the family and their school to put in place the right provision at the right time in the right place that makes it accessible to them without compromising their health. And that would be a, a really key message that I would, would want to put across. What would you like GPs to learn from you and your family's experience? If I were speaking to a GP or a paediatrician, because actually in the care of children and young people, it's often the paediatrician, I would say, firstly, yes, we know there are no magic cures for this, but don't assume you can't help because you really can. So I would recommend that you do some learning around it. So there is the Learn About ME CPD module that this podcast is connected to. Be curious, find out about how the child's ME is affecting them and work from there really. Every person with ME experiences it a bit differently. And as Benita already explained, there are certain um, conditions that might come along with it or symptoms that people might have with it that actually can be partially treated. So my daughter does have severe POTS. You know, some treatment for that can actually improve her quality of life, even by a few notches, and that makes a difference. Work with the child and their parents or carers and the school to help them pace their energy. GPs have a really instrumental role in that, in my view. Helen, do you have anything else you would like to share with our audience? Thank you, Claire. Just listening to Benita there, discussing the aspect of worsening with exercise and post-exertional malaise might be helpful. Just thinking about my own daughter, she's at the more severe end at the moment of her ME. Just to explain a bit about what that looks like and how it feels and, and how it shows itself, because it is counterintuitive. For her, on a good day, um, I can take her out for a drive. We do that quite often in the evening, it gets her out the house, it's really good for her. Unfortunately, on a bad day, and this is really difficult for us as parents, because of her energy limitations, she really can't tolerate much interaction at all. So any discussion, conversation, even a two minutes, what would you like for lunch? It just drains her and makes her worse. And so we have to really, really limit the interaction. And actually we find then the kindest thing we can do for her is to leave her to lie in bed with the curtains closed and no company and no stimulus and nothing to relieve the endless day that she's facing. Um, and I find myself sitting down here working. I, I'm fortunate enough to be able to work from home, um, which allows me to keep going with my work. And I'm thinking I can do nothing for this girl who's sitting up there in bed, lying up there in bed, um, really unwell. It's so counterintuitive. Um, and I do understand why it's so difficult for people to get their heads around that. But on days when her energy has dropped to that level, she knows it's what she needs to do to replenish that energy at cellular level and allow herself to come back up to her normal baseline, which by the way, is probably about 20% of yours or mine on a normal day. Um, but that's, 
she knows that's what she has to do and it's it's very very difficult as a parent it's one of the hardest things actually of this of parenting a child at that kind of stage of the illness thank you to our guests for joining today i'm claire ogden and this has been the learn about me and pediatrics podcast i would like to thank our project partners emmy action scotland the emmy association and the 25 percent emmy group for their support in creating the podcast for this project and to all of you for taking the time to listen today. This podcast was produced by Zoe Anderson. You can find out more about the work of our partners at emmyaction.net, emmyassociation.org.uk and 25megroup.org along with actionforme.org.uk. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening. Please like and share this podcast, rate it on your favourite podcast app and do tune in next time.